Hey freebies, do you know what the Bible actually says about LGBTQIA+, and I mean what it actually says, not what someone told you it says. Have Christians responded well to homosexuality or other forms of sexuality external to heterosexuality? Does Andy Stanley have the correct and righteous response as accepting and affirming members of the LGBTQ community that want to follow Jesus. To some of you, Stanley would say that he doesn't subscribe to your version of Christianity. What does that mean? Let's answer all of these questions and more. I'm Blake Watson, and this is We The Free. Last week, in light of the recent events in Israel, I spent the entire show explaining the biblical and secular history of the conflict between Israel and Palestine. It was very thorough and detailed for the full hour. I really recommend that you go check it out. But I ended that episode saying that today we would continue that subject in the second segment. However, two weeks ago, I did another special episode where the entire program was dedicated to the subject of progressivism and secularism in the Christian church and its long-term effects. And even after an hour of broadly discussing that subject, we weren't finished. The catalyst for that whole segment was something that took place at North Point Community Church, the church at which Andy Sanley is the pastor. I'll talk more about that in just a second. But at the end of last week's show, I mentioned that we would be op- that would be the opening conversation in today's program. Well, here's what we're going to do. Today, we're covering sexual ideology in the church, and tomorrow, we're covering the biblical perspective on war and self-defense and then just and unjust killing. So that's right. Two episodes this week, today and tomorrow, so tune in tomorrow at 11 a.m. as well. Now, with that said, Andy Stanley's Atlanta-based church hosted a conference called Unconditional, which was a private conference for parents of and ministers to so-called LGBTQ plus Christians. The conference featured speakers who were professing Christians, yet were both in gay so-called marriages. Uh, Reviews of the conference made it clear that the event was affirming and accepting, which is the obvious opposite of condemning, of LGBTQ plus Christians. And it's all quite, it's, it's caused quite a stir online, especially after Al Mohler, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote a piece about Andy Stanley's departure from biblical Christianity, as if to say that the views expressed by Stanley and his staff and that conference are unbiblical. Well, the conference happened, which was intended to be not so public, and then Sunday came around and everybody was talking about it. So Andy Stanley said this to his congregation. 
Um, Y'all are very smart people. So all you have to do is, you know, in 30 seconds, you can read between the lines. The author is actually accusing me of departing from his version of biblical Christianity. So I want to go on record and say, I have never subscribed to his version of biblical Christianity to begin with. So I'm not leaving anything. And he, if he were here, he would say, well, Andy, I've never subscribed to your version of biblical Christianity. And that's okay, we can agree to disagree. But this is so extraordinarily misleading. In my opinion, just my opinion, his version of biblical Christianity is the problem. His version, this version of biblical Christianity is why people are leaving Christianity unnecessarily. It's the version, it's the version that causes people to resist the Christian faith because they can't find Jesus in the midst of all the other stuff and all the other theology and all the other complexity that gets globbed on to the message. Bottom line, that version of Christianity draws lines and Jesus drew circles. He drew circles so large and included so many people in his circle that it consistently made religious leaders nervous. And his circle was big enough to include sinners like me. And I come from a long line of sinners. You shouldn't be criticizing us. You should come and learn from us. We've been doing this for years. Every evangelical, every conservative church needs to figure this out. And I work with some of the most, the greatest staff in the world who have waded into this messy situation. And I'm not saying kids are a mess or parents are a mess. I'm just saying it is, it is messy because of the, the messaging of, of the church for many, many years that have just discounted this whole topic. So the purpose of the Unconditional Conference was not to equip parents to convince their gay kids that they weren't gay or shouldn't be gay. That was not the purpose of the conference. Every parent who attended the conference had already tried that, right? Christian parents of LGBTQ plus kids go there immediately. They pull out the verses, they argue. They, I mean, that's just, that's just where parents go. They pull out the convince, convict, coerce, control. Convince, convict, coerce, control. Convict, convict, you know, convince, convict, coerce, control. And just as a parenting strategy in general, how effective is that? I mean, that doesn't work with your kids. That didn't work on you when you were a kid. The purpose of the conference wasn't to equip parents to debate with their kids. The purpose of the conference, of the unconditional conference was to equip parents to connect with their kids and to reconnect with their kids and to stay connected with their kids so they would have influence to keep their kids connected to their faith and keep their kids connected to Jesus. And this is why Justin and Brian were invited, the two married gay men at the center of all the controversy. And I'm sure that you've read all about that. And here's the thing about Brian and Justin. Their stories and their journeys of growing up in church and maintaining their faith in Christ and their commitment to follow Christ all through their high school and college and singles and all up to the time that they were married. Their story is so powerful for parents of gay, especially kids, that it's a story gay parents with gay kids need to hear. These guys are so excited about what we are doing because they, like you, like me, like compassionate Christians, don't want another generation of LGBTQ plus kids to feel like, hey, who I think I am is incompatible with at least attempting to follow Jesus and it's incompatible with the church because there is a bridge and these guys are bridge builders. And again, they know that I don't line up with everything with them theologically 
theologically or the way they interpret certain passages of scripture. But hey, the conference wasn't for me. The conference wasn't for most of you. I guarantee you the conference wasn't for any of the critics and for many men and men, women who put their faith in Christ, they just decide, okay, I'm just gonna buckle down. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna bear down. I'm just gonna be by myself. I'm not gonna have family. I'm gonna be sexually pure. And many, 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 many do that for long seasons of time. And some, for some, it's, it's, it's their whole life. But for many, that is not sustainable. And so they choose a same-sex marriage. Not because they're convinced it's biblical. They read the same Bible we do. They chose to marry for the same reason many of us did. Love, companionship, and family. And in the end, as was the case for all of us, and this is the important thing I want you to hear me say, it's their decision. Our decision is to decide how we respond to their decision. Our decision as a group of local churches is how are we gonna respond to their decision? And we decided 28 years ago, we draw circles, we don't draw lines. We draw big circles. If someone desires to follow Jesus, regardless of their starting point, regardless of their past, regardless of their current circumstances, our message is come and see and come sit with me. And this is not new. This is who we are, it's who we've always been, and this is why I love our church, and this is why I'm so extraordinarily proud of you. We aren't condoning sin. We are restoring relationships, and we are literally saving lives. Compassion is a good thing. And by that, I mean genuine compassion, like the compassion exhibited by our Lord, Jesus. There is, however, a false compassion, which comes packaged as affirmation, acceptance, and quote-unquote real love. But the truth is that genuine compassion is an outpouring of authentic love from a place of sincerity. A compassionate person has sympathy towards the distress of another with a desire to alleviate it. And this comes from the Latin word, which means to suffer with. Now, of course, with, with any characteristic we're trying to understand, there's never a greater example than looking to our Lord, who in the Old Testament is constantly described as the Hebrew word rachem, which is translated into both the word compassion and the word mercy, almost interchangeably. And then in the New Testament, God is described by the Apostle Paul with the word oiktirmos, which means compassion and pity, favor, and mercy as well. Now, those are the definitive words used to describe the compassion of God. But there really isn't a better definition than to look at the actions of God in the flesh, the compassion exhibited by Jesus. So, for the next however many minutes we spend here, I want you to forget whatever culture and society and the world and even the dictionary tells you about what compassion is, and let's consider some examples of 
compassion from the Son of God himself. The Gospels are littered with countless examples of the compassion of Jesus, who healed the sick and raised the dead and cast out demons. He was miraculously providential, etc. In light of today's topic, we're going to hyper-focus on two stories, both of which involve women as the main character, the woman at the well and the adulterous woman. Both of these are in John's gospel account, but if you want to follow along with me, we're going to start in John chapter 4. The third verse of that chapter tells us that Jesus left Judea and, and went away again into Galilee. Now, separating these two places, Judea and Galilee, was another place called Samaria. And long story short, the Jews and the Samaritans did not like each other for religious and cultural reasons. So much so, the Jews would take roads around Samaria, like not even setting foot in Samaria, to get to Galilee even though the shortest way to get to Galilee was directly through the middle of Samaria. But verse 4 tells us that Jesus has to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through it. And you'll find out why in a moment. Picking up in verse 5, it says, So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus is tired from walking all this way. And you'll be able to tell from the the context here in just a minute that the disciples have left him alone for the moment. And this is the middle of the day, which is important to the story. Verse 7 says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. So, in other words, this a woman by herself came in the middle of the day to draw water. Now, this was unusual because women traditionally would come either early in the morning or late in the evening to fetch water so as to avoid the heat. And they would also do this in groups. Like the women would do it as a group activity. So, this woman has come by herself in the hottest part of the day, like when there won't be anybody else there, as if she has no friends or she wants to avoid everyone or both. So it's just the two of them, Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So this woman is stunned that Jesus is speaking to her. And it's it's really more than just his Semitism. It's a man alone with a woman, a Jew to a Samaritan. And to many, Jesus was considered like a rabbi. So this would be considered practically unholy for him to do this. And not just that he's speaking to her, but you know he's asking her to, to give him a drink. In fact, uh, William Barclay said that a rabbi would not even speak to his own wife or daughter 
or sister or, or any women at all in public, that they were so strict with this that they would literally walk into walls, like closing their eyes and not even speaking to the women in public. So she questions him, and Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Well, she's confused at this response from Jesus, as most anybody would be. Jesus is saying something she doesn't understand, yet leading her towards understanding. That's a classic tactic of his teaching. He offers her living water. And she said to him, Sir, you you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Her misunderstanding is that Jesus isn't talking about actual physical water. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Now listen, this is his setup. He's showing her that he's not talking about the water in the well. And he's showing her that he's offering her something different. Something different than the water from the well. In fact, whatever this living water is, he's saying that if she drinks it, she'll never be thirsty again. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Stop right there. Eternal life, that's the gift he's offering her. This is the water that if you drink of it, you will never thirst again. It's no mistake that he refers to it as living water because he's talking about eternal life. Now this woman, as with every person, needs this spiritual living water in order to actually live. And when you drink it in, you not only quench eternal thirst, but you you yourself actually become a source for this same water. Now, again, Jesus is saying something she doesn't quite understand, but he's leading her towards understanding. So she says, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. She still doesn't understand that this isn't about physical water or drawing water from a well. She thinks he's talking about something like mystical or some magical water. And this is where Jesus really, really drops it on her. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Okay. Humongous, gigantic pause button right here. Okay, just just hit the pause button. Don't forget where we're at. Jesus just dropped this revelatory bomb on her. He's, He's offering her living water so that If she drinks it, she'll never thirst again. And he's revealed to us that she's had five husbands and she's living with another man right now. What is the problem here? 
Is there an issue with the fact that she's divorced and remarried four times? Is there something wrong with cohabitation? Why has she come alone and, and why is it that she has no friends with her or she's avoiding the, the time when people would be there? Why did Jesus say that he had to come to Samaria? I graduated from high school with a guy who uh, in recent years, uh, he came out and professed to the world and, and all of us that he is homosexual and he's since entered into a legal union with another man and they've moved to a different state. Now, you notice I didn't say gay marriage. Why is that? Because there is no such thing. There is no such thing. In fact, there is no such thing as a marriage external to Christianity or the Christian union with one man and one woman with the Lord. To use the vernacular, Christian marriage is actually, is in actuality a distinction without a difference from the genuine thing. Now, I say this because marriage was something created by God when He created the first man and woman. In Genesis chapter 2, God has just created Eve for Adam, a helper suitable for him. And the chapter closes like this. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, in the chapter before this, Genesis chapter 1, the, the first chapter of the Bible serves as like an overview of creation week. Genesis 1, 27 through 28 says, Male and female, He created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So from the literal beginning, God created men and women for the other, and for the dual purpose of companionship and reproduction. Now, as, as you surely learned in middle school health or and science or anatomy, uh, biology, physiology, uh, reproduction or the recreation of human life is only possible through a male and female fertilization, to put it mildly. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 in the middle of a whole passage describing the marital union, in which he says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. And then he says, Husbands, love your wives. Each individual among you is also to love his, his own wife, even as himself and the wife must see to it that she, she respects her husband. Um, the same person um, wrote this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It says, Each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do you hear and notice 
the binary language. Male and female, husband with wife, he and she. In fact, when you search the entirety of Scripture, this is the only way you see marriage or the proper sexual union described. That same chapter in Corinthians uh, goes even deeper. Paul says, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, the Lord does, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. All right, don't check out just yet. This is just getting interesting. I want you to see where this is going, so please hold on. Let's look at what Jesus says now. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, It was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right, the, the word there for unchastity means to be sexually immoral. And that, that opens up an entirely different door, but a door in the same house. I'm going to sum all of this up, but let's, let's just quickly understand that moral sex and the marital union are one in the same. Thus, the phrase, the two shall become one flesh. But the real question for us today is, why haven't we seen any inclusion of same-sex unions in Scripture? There are none. Well, let's just let's take a look. Other than every passage on marriage using specifically binary language, man and woman, God's Word is abundantly clear on sexuality external to heterosexual marriage. Jude chapter 7 makes it clear that God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their homosexuality. In Leviticus 18.22, it says, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. That verse shows you what is proper and what is improper. Later, in Leviticus 20.13, the law states, If there is a man who lies with a male, as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Now, this shows you that in ancient Israel, homosexuality was a crime deserving of capital punishment. And in modern Middle Eastern countries, like amongst people like Hamas and Hezbollah and Fatah, that's still the case. A capital punishment. It's also worth mentioning that uh, these were laws given by God to Moses. So it, it wasn't like the Israelites were just making up these rules. God detested this, and under the Old Testament law and covenant, the judgment was death. But how did God's judgment against the sin adapt within the new covenant instituted by Christ? Passively. I mean, Paul described it uh, like this in, in Romans chapter 1. It says, God gave them over 
he, he gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So God gives them over. He just lets them do whatever they want to do. And what is the result? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10, Do you not know that the unrighteous, the unrighteous, remember that word, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now this isn't an exhaustive list, but in describing common habitual sins amongst the Corinthians, Paul lists, among other things, fornicators, all right, that's the same word from earlier, generally meaning to be sexually immoral, adulterers, those who have sexual relations outside of the marital union, which is, you know, premarital sex, extramarital sex, and Jesus even said in, in Matthew 5, 27 to 28, that simply looking at someone lustfully is adulterous. Paul also said the Greek word um, malakos, and that's uh, the word, therefore, effeminate, which would describe something like transvestitism or transgenderism for us today. And then, of course, he says homosexuals. And these, he's saying, were sins that defined the lives of those living in Corinth. And he says, those unrepentant of these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. You've got to think about the language that people use today. They, they use the word identity, like I identify as this. Well, this is the same thing that Paul's describing. These were habitual lifestyle-like sins that just defined their whole lives. They kept doing them. And he says those unrepentant of these will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I have just referenced 12 passages of God's Word that clearly demonstrate that the only proper marriage and sexuality is that which is between one man and one woman. Sex is only permissible within those parameters. Marriage is only legitimate within those parameters. And I'm willing to bet that every single one of us, every one of us, has failed in some way in those parameters. Every single one of us is guilty of some sort of sin in relation to marriage and sex. And so was the woman at the well. Her numerous divorces and remarriages and her current relationship made her guilty of adultery and sexual sin. I've been guilty of the, the same stuff, and, and I'll bet you have as well. But the question of our day and age, and the key question of this issue is, how does Jesus respond to this? 
How does Jesus respond to her? Listen to me. And, and please, please do not miss this. Jesus, looking at this woman, not with condemnation, but compassion, offers her first and foremost something entirely surprising. He didn't begin by rebuking her for her sin. He doesn't offer her a, a plan to overcome her sexual addictions. Um, Jim Berg says it this way, Her greatest problem was not her immorality. Her greatest problem was that she sought to fulfill the longing in her soul with something temporal. Relationships with mere men. Jesus offered her a relationship with her Creator that would have a permanent impact on her thirst for intimacy with another person. That is just absolutely incredible. Now this shows us a few things. Number one, Jesus addressed her sin. He didn't affirm her choices, he addressed them. Secondly, Jesus offered her himself the satisfaction to her greatest need. And number three, she was changed by this. And the result is, it changed Samaria. Watch this from John chapter 4. It says, So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. And it says they went out of the city and were coming to him. The Samaritans were coming to Jesus. Now, there's one more story that we need to use to illustrate this point, and that's four chapters later in John chapter 8. Jesus is teaching in the temple in Jerusalem, which, sidebar, that shows you who the temple belongs to. Anyways, he's in the middle of teaching when the Pharisees drag a woman who, they drag in a woman who they say was caught in adultery, in the very act. And being supposed experts in the Mosaic law, they cite their legal reasoning for her punishment. And this was all an effort to entrap Jesus. They, they say, now in the law of Moses, um, it commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? Now, when you look at the Mosaic law, you'll notice something pretty critical that they left out here. And in fact, an entire person they left out. First, I'll show you the law they're citing, expressed both in Leviticus 20.10 and Deuteronomy 22.22. They say, if there is a woman who commits adultery with another man's wife, uh, one who commits adultery with his, his friend's wife, the adulterer and the, adulter the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And then also Deuteronomy 22.22 if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. Thus, thou, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Now, do you see the first problem with the Pharisees' plan? There's no man. They have only brought a woman before Jesus. Well, now let me quote you uh, one more law for extra clarity. Deuteronomy 17.6 says, On the evidence of 
two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. Historically, there were a handful of sins that demanded capital punishment or death because God did not want to allow such evil to persist among his people. But God, in his infinite eternal wisdom, knew that these things could be weaponized against others, so there was an extra requirement of first-hand witnesses, plural. A single person could not make the accusation, but numerous people could, giving the accusation some kind of credibility. However, catching someone in the physical act of adultery was next to impossible. So this was a rare capital punishment, as were the others, but that shows us the Pharisees in John chapter 8 who have only brought half the guilty party before Jesus. They've done something suspicious here. In fact, what's obvious from the absence of the man is that the Pharisees set this woman up, specifically in order to catch her in the act and in order to cite this law. So, what is the trap? The trap is, in the words of John MacArthur, if Jesus rejected the law of Moses, his credibility would be gone. If he held to Mosaic law, his reputation for, look at this, compassion and forgiveness would have been questioned. And what did Jesus do? He kneels down and starts writing something in the dirt. And biblical scholars and theologians have debated for a while about what exactly Jesus wrote in the dirt. But he writes something, and then he stands up and says to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, this is Jesus referencing the law back to them, which basically said uh, the accusers, the, the people that accused the person were required to be like the executioners. They had to be the first to throw the stones. Now, whatever he writes, some people believe Jesus was writing down their private sins, like the, the sins of the Pharisees, because this is how it describes what happens next. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he, Jesus, was left alone, and the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. So Jesus calls, out, calls them out for their hypocrisy, and he likely defeated them with the sword of truth. They're all shamefully gone now, and it's only Jesus and the woman there. Now, unfortunately, the accusations of the mob are true. Regardless of being duped into it, she's still guilty of her sexual sin. In fact, you can probably deduce that she already had a reputation for this, and that's how they were able to set her up. So, what will Jesus do with her? Well, it says, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, 
sin no more. Just as with the woman at the well, Jesus did not exhibit condemnation, and yet he called her to repentance. He said, sin no more. And he even protected her from the mob. Well now, what are we supposed to do with all of this? I believe there are two rebukes that must be given in the, the utmost love, Christian love, that I can express. First, I say to all of the Christians and the church in America that we have failed to properly minister to, evangelize, and disciple people who express same-sex attraction. The majority of our interactions for years have been steeped in the same condemning tone of the Pharisees, diametrically opposed to the compassionate attitude of Christ. We have not been like Jesus to these people who uh, Jesus demonstrated pity toward those who were lost and, and suffering, and yet He at the same time wasn't dismissive or even affirming to them, calling those people to transformation and change. But secondly, to those who promote a, a sexually perverse Christian life as legitimate Christianity, I say, shame on you. Listen to the accurate word of God and realize that, that you, you are masquerading an invalid compassion, invalid compassion and love, because real love, as demonstrated by our Lord, sometimes means rebuking someone for their sin, holding them accountable, calling them to repentance. After all, Paul tells us in Romans 2.4 that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. That's real compassion. And you also have to realize that anything outside of genuine Christian marriage falls beyond God's will. It's destructive and, and ultimately damning. Now, therefore, the, the, the actually loving, the truly loving and caring thing to do is to have the pity and compassion that leads others toward righteousness and repentance. I don't think I have to work too hard to prove uh, what a problem this has manifested, but a pastor and, and researcher, Ryan Burge, he conducted a, a survey among religious and irreligious men and women between the ages of 18 and 25. Take a look at this chart. Protestants are the second line down, showing that only 84% of so-called Protestant Christians are straight or heterosexual. For Catholics and non-denominational Christians, it was basically the same percentage. Comparatively, just look at the bottom where you find the atheist and agnostic results, both demonstrating about 54% of those groups express heterosexuality. In other words, this is a growing, festering problem. The question at this point is, how do people not already know 
what I've been talking about today. How, how do people not know this scripture and know this stuff? How is it that there, have, there are so many so-called Christians who come to the completely wrong and immoral conclusion, giving horrible justification for the sins of the LGBTQIA plus community? Why is there a growing number of, of Andy Stanleys and Pope Francis's out there? Well, other than what God shows us in Romans chapter 1, I have one story that we'll finish with that provides a lot of insight for today. This story is from the Louisville Courier uh, Journal. The headline says, quote, Historic Baptist Church's new pastor, new co-pastor, a gay man says calling is the honor of my life. The article reads, Jordan Conley, the new co-pastor at the historic Crescent Hill Baptist Church, has a unique tie to the house of worship where he now serves. It's where he and his husband, Patrick Allison, were married in 2016. Now 29, the Knott County native was called last month to serve at the Louisville Church where he was ordained earlier this year, making the first time the Crescent Hill establishment has been led by a gay pastor. He'll be a familiar sight on stage moving uh, forward alongside fellow co-pastor Andrea Woolley. So that means this old Kentucky church is being led by a female pastor and a homosexual man. For them to say, we've seen you as a church member, we've seen you as a youth minister, and we trust you with shepherding us onto whatever is next in our spiritual journey, that is the honor of my life, Conley told the Courier Journal. It is a burden that I do not take lightly. The church has hosted services at its current location in the heart of Louisville's Crescent Hill neighborhood since 1926, when its original building was torn down to make way for a venue for the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. The church cut ties with the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary more than 20 years ago, though, because the Southern Baptist Convention did not accept the idea of women being pastors, Conley said. Instead, Crescent Hill Baptist Church and several others around Louisville aligned with the American Baptist Convention. The church has evolved since then, Conley said, noting 97%, 97% of people that attend, attended the Crescent Hill Baptist Church were in favor of him becoming a co-pastor. Now, the article goes on to describe his victimhood, which he compares to being black or Native American, but the article is complete with pictures of Conley posing in the sanctuary of this historic church. The, the pictures look pretty normal, but there's one picture of him holding his Bible. And upon a, a closer examination, I can see the translation of his Bible is the NRSV. That's the New Revised Version, which I must say differs dramatically from, let's say, the King James or the New American Standard Bible and the English Standard, um, the three most accurate translations of Scripture you could ever study. Now, just as a comparison, I want you to take a look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 through 11, in the NASB and the NRSV. You'll notice, you'll notice that the word 
um, homosexuals is completely removed from this passage and is changed instead into male prostitutes and also men who engage in illicit sex. In 1 Timothy 3.2, Paul is outlining the qualifications for church leadership in which the accurate translation reads, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now, this is one of the clearest passages demonstrating the singular gender responsible for pastoring, but the NRSV changed it to read, now a bishop must be above reproach, married only once. I could go on, but you get the idea. So-called Christians validate the idea that one can be openly identifying with their sexual deviancy, unrepentant, and be a Christian because they are both suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, and they're literally changing the words of the Lord to fit their lifestyles, which is abominable in itself. So this must be challenged, but in a way that is honoring Christ and also the person. So let's be compassionate, truly compassionate, and, and speak the truth in love, starting right now. Well, that's going to do it for me. Join us tomorrow for more on Israel and Palestine. For now, go and be the salt and light you were meant to be. And we will see you next time on We Are Free.